I mean, we could just rerun that same rabbit hole. Oh, that's a great call. Yeah, we'll just dub over 78. Greetings and welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world beat the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is February 16th, 2021. I am not Sarah Ziegler. She is on vacation this week. We wish her the best. Uh, I'm Neil Payne, senior sports writer here at 538, and I am here with one of my usual co-hosts, 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? I'm doing great, Neil. Um, I think you did an excellent job with that opening. I just want to say, oh, you know, I really appreciate you saying that. You know, I had a lot of butterflies going in there. Uh, I know. So thanks for for saying that. But you nailed it. You nailed oh, it. Yeah, ten one out of take ten. two. I mean, the audience doesn't know that, but I can speak honestly. One take. <laughs> Well, Jeff, I mean, it's. I think this is the first time we've ever been. Um, it's just been a one-on-one podcast for us, uh, at least in this incarnation of Hot Takedown. Right. So we're going to talk about the Mets offseason for most of it and then uh, get into. We don't need to go negative, Jeff. We don't need to go that negative. Jersey talk, you know, <laughs> nuances of Jersey, um, what alternates we like, et cetera. And then we'll get into some uh, golf and hockey talk, right? Yeah, well, uh, I, I did want to talk true. about <laughs> that part is actually true. We were going to talk about hockey later in the show. And uh, I did want to talk about golf because, I mean, we have to after that rabbit hole last week with uh, Jordan Spieth. It seems like I thought we had we had anti-jinxed him. It seemed like he was going to get that breakthrough end that drought that we had talked about. And then maybe we actually just straight up jinxed him. Uh, maybe if, if you want us to talk about a losing streak of yours so that then you'll break it, but uh, look like you're about to break it, but then not break it. Just write to us at podcast at 538.com. But he really just did the same thing. He did the same exact thing. I mean, we could just rerun that same rabbit hole. Oh, that's a great call. Yeah, we'll just dub over 78 consecutive tournaments. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, robotic voice over it. Um, Yeah, it did seem like exactly the same thing. And even the note that we had had about him not breaking 70 in the final round when he was uh, like within a certain number of strokes of winning... All of that played out. He still he shot exactly 70, and he didn't win the tournament. Daniel Berger won the tournament. And in fact, Spieth wasn't even the one that sort of, you know, kind of notably blew it. Uh, Nate Lashley had that, whatever that oh was, goodness. triple bogey or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, Spieth, I mean, I guess it's good. And I heard a lot of talk um, after our rabbit hole, but then also after the tournament over the weekend, that it's like, well, on the one hand, it's good to just see him like in the mix again and sort of there, you know, you have to feel like eventually he'll he'll kind of have the breakthrough uh, if he keeps playing like this and being in contention. That's sort of the half glass full, I think, approach to it, right? Yeah, I mean, I do think that this. Unfortunately, I feel like th- if he was going to win a tournament, this was probably the one he had the best chance of winning. Pebble Beach is, I think, the shortest course on the tour, so that helps him. It was also a really bad field. Let's be honest. I mean, Berger won, but Berger was also. Probably, except for him and Cantley. I think Cantley might have come in second, but him and Cantley were like the only two like kind of a top tier players that were even in the tournament. You're you're totally right though. Yeah, that if Spieth, I mean, that was sort of the situation for him to have the breakthrough. And that we talked about this, we slacked about it during the week. We thought that um, this would be the moment when he would break that drought, but no. 
Yeah, but I mean, he, he certainly is playing better, and it wasn't like a melt. I mean, Nate Lashley's putting was remarkable, if you haven't seen it. Yeah, so people should look that up um, uh, if you're a fan of watching people miss putts. But anyway, enough about golf. I know we can talk about it uh, all show, but instead on today's show, we're going to check in on the NHL, our other uh, shared passion, and how the start of their first outside-the-bubble uh, pandemic season is going. And then we'll have a couple of special guests join us to talk about the recent announcement of EA Sports reviving its college football series and the current state of sports video games in general. And then finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Last night saw the conclusion of maybe the longest series the NHL will have ever seen. The Arizona Coyotes and the St. Louis Blues played seven consecutive games against each other. I should say longest regular season series, not, not playoff series. You would think seven games, playoff series. No, this was regular season. They played seven straight times, and the Coyotes won the series 4-3 to three, uh, with their win last night. Uh, the NHL is not trying to take any cues from baseball or anything. This epic Blues-Coyotes matchup was an accident. The reason it happened was due to other teams needing to postpone games because of COVID-19 protocols. I guess in that way, it was taking a cue from early season baseball last year. But the NHL is having similar growing pains as it transitions from playing in a bubble last year in Canada to just playing in a pandemic this season, uh, a lot of which is happening in the United States. On the Athletics NHL show, John Vogel talked about some of the frustrations about the league's pandemic preparedness specifically among the Buffalo Sabres, who've had six games postponed and have had to contend with a serious outbreak following exposure to the virus when they played the New Jersey Devils on January 31st. There was a lot of reaction instead of uh, proactive measures. Um, it's just uh, it's just been interesting, the fact that the, the players, they just want to play. They all said that. They're happy to be back. They knew they were taking a risk, they're, but they're happy to be back. They, The league has a chance to grow just because they came back. They know that. They wanted to do their best and just go out there and stay on, stay on the TV, basically. They just wanted to keep playing, draw the fans in, keep the fans engaged until things return to normal. And now, just because of this, they can't. And that, that uh, from the players I've heard about, that's, uh, that's one of the disappointing things, is they really wanted to just keep going and Try, try to be as normal as possible, and then this changed everything. So, Jeff, did the NHL's reactionary COVID-19 response change everything, or do you think they'll still be able to get through the season just fine? Get through the season? Look, I think they'll finish the season in some form. I don't know if every team's going to finish every game on the schedule due to the amount of cancellations that happened. I think inevitably... They're going to probably have to go to points percentage, which they did last year, just because if you look at the schedule, I mean, especially with, you know, the entire Canadian division, every team's played, what, 16 games or something like that. And then you have teams like the Devils who've only played nine games, nine games so far, um, which is which is crazy. Um, so there's a lot to get in from here to the end of the season. And I think the fact that they have the NBC Olympics in late July does kind of put a ceiling on like how far they can go into the summer to, to extend this uh, season. And, you know, I think they also want to make sure that next season is a pretty much quote unquote normal season, especially with the new team joining. Um, you know, I think they want to go back to like their sort of baseline schedule. And obviously they can't do that if they go too deep into the, into the summer or even into the fall, like last year. So yeah, I think we have an adjustment. I just don't think we're going to like see a completion every game, but it does seem like the players and the teams are all eager to keep playing. So it, 
there's no existential crisis facing the NHL, but obviously um, it has not been a smooth flight so far. And and I think the league the, is, you know, they're putting in some new uh, COVID protocol tweaks, which beg the question, why weren't you doing this at the beginning of the year? Yeah, probably the rapid testing seems like the biggest development. And it's a great question as to why, you know, I know it's an investment and I know that, you know, all these teams are, you know, either they are, they're certainly looking at less revenue. We'll say, I, I ha- always hesitate to use the phrase losing money because I, um, we don't know that. And uh, teams have a notorious history of not being fully forthcoming about that. But certainly it is an extra expense, but I think it is one that uh, makes sense to do uh, because you were having guys, you know, being, um, declared ineligible for games like 24 hours after their last test and and uh, you can see how things can kind of spiral out of control the other thing and I think it's interesting to parallel it against the other sports and it's clear that they had been leaning heavily on the research from uh, the CDC around Major League Baseball and especially the NFL uh, where in both cases they had not found any case of transmission across teams between players while on the playing surface playing the sport uh, and that was the big fear early in the baseball season was that when the Miami Marlins played that game against the Phillies and they had multiple players who had, in retrospect, uh, were carrying the virus, that they would have infected the Phillies and it just would have kind of been a disaster from the start. That didn't end up happening. Uh, And then in in the NFL, they could not find another instance, despite our our fears going into the year of, you know, how do you play football in a pandemic without players infecting each other, you know, such close contact. It didn't appear to happen during the season there either. So I think they were relying on that. But the Devils... Sabres situation, I think, raises some serious questions about maybe it's something about hockey, specifically indoors, poor airflow, uh, getting in close proximity to people. And I don't know, the ice like. So I think uh, the NHL uh, and probably the variants that you have floating around now were not uh, in circulation during the baseball season and even um, for most of the football season. So I think all of those things have caused them to have to rewrite the playbook on the fly. And, and frankly, a lot of the NHL's rules were stricter than the, the NBA. We remember, you know, the, the Capitals players getting fined for going to Ovechkin's hotel room or, you know, they were really trying to lock down on, on how much the players were sort of intermingling and what they were doing off the ice. Um, but we're not seeing the same sort of level of outbreak in, in the NBA and, and whether that's due to the nature of the sport or anything like that. But yeah, the Buffalo, New Jersey game is worrisome, especially considering, you know, a couple of the linesmen got it in that game. The Sabres uh, coach got it, you know, fairly bad case of it too. So it was scary. Um, fortunately, and I don't think the league was prepared for that. Um, no, I don't think so either. Based on what they'd seen the year before, but it's obviously nothing like last year where they were in the bubble and, and, you know, I think the idea of a bubble is is interesting. Whether they're going to do that for the playoffs might be an option, but I, I don't think the owners themselves will will really embrace that too much. Not, neither will the players. I wonder if there are also regrets about you know whether or not they they could have worked out the logistics of putting more teams, like a higher share of the league's teams in Canada, uh, and being able to work that out. But maybe that was never an option because you know there are only so many arenas that you can rotate through. And of course, uh, you know, the money they are allowing fans in some some of these um, uh, arenas in some states that have that open. Uh, So maybe that was also a big part of the consideration, because we're seeing the flip side of that with the Toronto Raptors in the NBA, where uh, it was 
announced last week that they were going to be playing uh, the rest of the season in Tampa Bay. Uh, so it's sort of the the opposite situation where I guess if you send one of your U.S. bound teams up to Canada, they're not at risk for COVID. That's good. Uh, but then they really have no prayer of coming back um, south and finishing the season. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I guess, similar to what we saw with the the Blue Jays yeah. during the baseball season. But yeah, I mean, C- Canada, the U.S., I mean, this this is, I mean, they've had 826,000 cases. 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 Um, 21,000 deaths. I mean, it's not even comparable. I mean, it's it just, they've had the virus, you know, comparatively way more under control for the duration of the last 10 months. So that was inevitable. But it is a stark reminder, especially when you look at, you know, what's going on with the Sabres and then the how far away Toronto's like a short drive away right. and not, uh, not that far. no problems whatsoever. Um, so it, it is a reminder of uh, how much the U.S. has struggled. To say the yeah, least. Yeah. Well, uh, like like we said earlier, it, it seems to be sort of taking a little bit more of a hopeful note. Um, and I think you're totally right about it will probably be a situation where not every team gets 56 games in. Uh, it's going to be really tough. Uh, I think I saw the Sabres are going to have to play nine games in 14 days. And, and uh, some of these other teams are going to have to squeeze in maybe even more. Uh, you're, you're talking about a little bit like baseball when the Cardinals were playing double headers, you know, it was like a huge number of their games. You can't even do double headers in hockey. Maybe that's something they should have thought of going into the season. Um, but yeah, and then when you rank things off a of points percentage, you're going to have the same complaints that, that people had last year where it's like, if you're a team that's on the cusp and you haven't played enough games, but other teams uh, have, you could say, well, we haven't had the opportunity to play our way in. By contrast, if you're a team that has, imagine being a team that has more points than a team that played fewer games uh, because they had a COVID outbreak and uh, they make the playoffs because they had more uh, points as a percentage of of, uh, available points in their games. And you're just sort of like, what are we supposed to do? We played the games that were in front of us. We have more points in them, but they're going to the playoffs because of point percentage. And maybe it's a saving grace that it's it's been the largest outbreaks have been the Devils and the Sabres. No offense to the to the Devils, but those were teams that were not necessarily expected to make the playoffs uh, or had aspirations <laughs> to make the playoffs. But I mean, imagine, you know, I mean, there have been br- uh, outbreaks uh, to a lesser extent with like the Avalanche and the Flyers and uh, uh, the Dallas Stars to start the season. So those are like contenders tending type teams, but they didn't have to miss, you know, two and a half weeks or whatever it was. So I think it would be maybe a bigger deal and you'd have a, a lot more um, concern about it if it were not two teams that were probably, let's face it, not not going to make the playoffs no matter how things shook out this season. They're also doing a very interesting thing. And this has definitely got to be a, a first for North American sports where they're play, they're they're rearranging the way that players said, I guess, in the locker rooms and meals and stuff where you're having players who have been previously affected buffering the players who have not been affected to, to basically with it's the creative. thinking that, that, that there's a certain amount of immunity we know for, especially for the first three months after getting it, that that will um, help control the spread. So, you know, you got to try everything at this point. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's, let's uh, put aside the postponements and the COVID situation and talk about what's actually happened on the ice so far uh, this season. What has stood out to you about the start of the season, Jeff? I mean, it's interesting to just look at what, what teams are up and what teams are down. I think there's been a lot of surprises on that um, front. I'll start with the Rangers being, you know, a team that had obviously two top picks in 
uh, Alexis Lafreniere and, and Capococco and, and a lot of high, you know, in addition to all their existing stars and, and what they had built there. And then they just seem to have nothing going and have been a huge disappointment. They had the whole fiasco with uh, having a Tony cut, cut loose uh, MAGA legend, Tony D'Angelo um, from their team. And it's just been like, you know, real, really ugly start to the season. I, I think, it, you know, they've only scored 31 goals, uh, which is really low. Um, for I'm sure this is not something you're enjoying at all as a devil. No, no, I'm not at all. You know, not at all. I have no personal bias in this. Um, but then on the flip side, there's been some like really interesting surprise teams. I think we all knew Vegas was going to be good. Vegas looks, you know, great. But a team like Arizona is playing really well. Um, Florida Panthers. Yeah. Which had, you know, they're nine, two and two. I don't think anyone saw that coming. Um, it's yeah, they're the, the team I've um, uh, so I run these simulations off of these ELO ratings uh, for hockey that hopefully will be coming to the site at some point next season. But uh, for now, they're on my GitHub. Uh, if you go to this is a shameless plug for my GitHub. Uh, but if you go to uh, Neil Payne 538 at GitHub, you can find those. But uh, the Panthers are the team that has a- that have added the most to their playoff odds uh, since preseason. They're up 35.1 percentage points in in terms of making the playoffs. Now they have a 71 percent chance. Montreal is second in that. So they're another, I think, breakout team so far this year that that people were not necessarily expecting to be as good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was the other thing I was going to say. It's been fun. I mean, it's been fun to watch the Canadian teams play each other. And and I know Canada itself is enjoying this very much. But just seeing this sort of the two old guard, the the original six Canadian teams in Montreal and Toronto just be the sort of class of that North division has been fun to watch too. And I think Montreal made some offseason moves, um, strengthened their team, got a bunch of players and they're really coming through and, and looking solid. And, and Toronto, while blowing a huge loss last night, has otherwise looked pretty dominant. Austin Matthews has looked great and and everything they have going on there. So it's been fun to watch those teams too. Now don't sleep on the Jets and the Flames. They they uh they could be dark horses. But yeah, the the most disappointing team I think uh has been the Vancouver Canucks uh of all the teams in the in the north, but maybe in all the teams in the entire league so far uh based on the start they've gotten out to. I think they uh, had aspirations to be, you know, a cup contender at times last year, and now they're seven, eleven, and one to start the year, and just look terrible uh, for the most part. Yeah, I mean they they can't stop anything. I mean they're giving up four or five goals a night. It seems you know Holtby going there has not been a great success, and and they're just struggling. I think on the defensive end uh, altogether. So what happens when Jacob Markstrom, you know, he goes to Calgary and they're suddenly um, looking good. Uh, he he was sort of the the guy that held them together last year. I think people didn't give him enough credit and uh, for for Vancouver. And so then losing him, you know, it's probably no coincidence that they've fallen off. Yeah, I'm just looking at like Sunbelt hockey. What a year it's having with Tampa and Florida at the top of their division and Arizona playing pretty solid hockey and Dallas, obviously, you know, they, they had a bunch of cancellations at the very beginning um, and have only played 12 games, but their offenses look legit. So, you know, the South is, I guess Nashville's not doing great, but the South, yeah, do we count Carolina's Colorado? Good too. Carolina's do we count good Vegas? Too. Yeah. Carolina. I don't yeah. know if we count uh, Vegas. I don't Maybe. know if they count either, but they certainly, it's a non-traditional hockey market, which I think is, when yeah, I think Sun the top's belt, I think good, the bottom's good. It's the middle sort of section of the United States that's struggling. Yeah. 
um, we all kind of knew that they would be um, in the conversation, but it's good to be. I, I do think that this is shaping up for another. We talked about this last year. You know, Tampa looks really good. I know they lost to Florida um, yesterday, uh, but they've gotten out to a great start. Uh, so we could be looking at another like it's chalk. You know, there, it, it does seem like the teams at the top for the most part have been the teams that, you know, we kind of expected uh, with those exceptions of the surprise teams that you mentioned. And Tampa's at, at kind of the top of that. And last year, they won the cup as as favorites uh, despite the pandemic. So I, it's it's another data point to throw into that, at least in the early going, into that trend of the favorites are doing really well through COVID, which we would not have expected, I think, going in. No. Not necessarily. Uh, okay, so I think we can leave hockey there. I'm sure we will return to it at some point in the season. I don't know. Does Sarah have more uh, vacation time? Uh, you know, should we about call the her Cup and just get playoffs? her thoughts on on some of the some of these mid season trades or maybe yeah? The, what the are her thoughts on Jacob? What, what does she What does she think about the shakeup in the the Penguins front office? Right. Yeah. Ron Hextall. You know. <laughs> Good or bad, you know, I, I think he might be a little bit too much of a long-term builder for the situation the Pens are in right now. So I'm sure I will look forward to hear Sarah's thoughts on that, but I think we can uh, leave things there and uh, take a quick break. And then we're going to talk about sports video games. Talking about sports video games is something that I have been wanting to do on the show for a little while, and what better time than when Sarah is away for us to do that, and I am just so excited to be joined today by two wonderful guests in order to talk about just that. First, we have 538's designer and number one Pablo Sanchez fan, the wonderful Emily Shearer. Hey, Emily. Hi, Neil. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Happy to be back. Yes, always a delight to have you on the show. And we're also delighted to be joined by Kat Bailey, the creator of the Acts of the Blood God podcast and writer on all things video games. For my money, one of the smartest video game writers out there. Hey, how's it going, Kat? Is this the part where we share our college alums because rah-rah, sky-ma, golden gophers, you know. <laughs> I, I could break out into Ramblin' Wreck, uh, but you know, I, I, I think I'll spare the audience from that right now. Um, it, it, I have actually brought both of you here because uh, you're both uh, big into video games. And Kat, you also wrote a very interesting article at Vice a couple weeks ago about why EA Sports chose to kill its NCAA college football series back in 2013 and why all of a sudden now it's bringing the title back. Can you recap some of the issues that forced EA Sports and the NCAA to part ways in the first place? Sure, Neil. I think the biggest problem ultimately was that EA couldn't use player likenesses in its games, as we were already talking about a little bit. And a player noticed this. His name was Ed O'Bannon, and he was playing NCAA basketball back in 2009. And he realized that on a UCLA basketball retro team, he was in the game, but his name was not in there. It was just a character that had a generic number. It happened to have all of his stats and everything. What a and coincidence. He said, yeah, what a coincidence, an odd coincidence. And so he sued and asked, uh, he said, why am I not getting a, a piece of this money? So he went and started a collective uh, suit. He went and got a lot of athletes together. This was about 2009, 2010. And it kept winding its way through the courts. And it became kind of a cause celebrate for various athletes who felt like they were being screwed by NCAA's amateurism rules. And the EA really got caught in the middle of this because 
they really wanted the players in the actual game. And it showed in the way that they would try to go and get people like Robert Griffin III once they're in the NFL so that they could put them on the covers. They really wanted to do ultimate team with NCAA football, but they were just clashing so much with the NCAA and the conflict kept growing and growing. And finally, the NCAA threw up its hand and said, we're done. We are out. Sorry, EA. Good luck. And EA was still going to stick around. They were still going to do it because they thought, well, okay, we'll just negotiate separate deals with all of the different schools and all the different conferences. But then the conferences, who are also kind of tired of the lawsuits at this point, said, no, we're going to pull out as well. Um, And you started seeing Big Ten, Pac-12, I believe the SEC, were all preparing to pull all of their branding. And at a certain point, EA said, well, we built our credibility on licenses. And if we start to lose the licenses, people might start to realize that our games aren't very good. So... EA decided to take a break. And seven years later, uh, NCAA football is finally coming back. So with all those issues of player likenesses, have they been resolved or are they planning to get around them in some way? Well, yes and no. So I think the temperature has definitely come down a bit. So EA went and settled with Ed O'Bannon, that particular lawsuit. And over time, the NCAA has started to reckon with allowing players to profit off their likenesses. There have been multiple states that have passed laws uh, allowing players to profit off their likenesses, including California. And so the NCAA is in the process right now of revising its rules. Beyond that, because the lawsuits have been largely resolved and everything, schools like uh, Ohio State was the one that was rumored to be pulling out its its branding and its players and everything. They're back on board. Uh, Sounds like the conferences are back on board. The only one who's not back on board is the NCAA. So they're willing to come back. So EA is ready to go ahead with generic players, as they did before. I don't know if they're going to continue to just nakedly try and recreate players from the real world and drop them right back in the game with the stats and everything. But we'll see. Um, I think it's more likely that what's going to happen is EA will be able to negotiate separate deals with current college players who will then be in the game while all of the you know players who aren't superstars, aren't able to negotiate their own deals, are going to basically be on the bench. They're going to be generic players. And are they still going to have the... I know one of the big features of the college games in the past was the ability for uh, communities of fans to edit the rosters. And so you would drop the game. Yes, it would have generic names and this, that, and the other. But then Almost instantly within, you know, a day of, of the launch, some some people would have gone in and actually edited so that the you had the real names. Is that like a source of exposure legally to them? Or can they say like, oh, well, you know, it's out of our control what uh, fans choose to do with the rosters after we release the game? I can't speak toward whether it would be a source of exposure. I will say that it is an extremely popular feature and EA would probably be crazy not to have it in some respect. Uh, But at the same time, it is really early days for NCAA football. We're not going to see this thing probably for a couple years because EA is going to be building it basically from scratch again. So I guess we'll see. I think everything is kind of on the table right now, but EA is still making decisions at the moment. Well, yeah, and that's a great point about uh, the the fact that we won't see it for a couple of years, and that really puts the the video game landscape 
it will have been like a decade since the last time we saw it and like two consoles removed since the last time that we saw um, NCAA football. How does the proposed EA college football game fit into what the current sports video game landscape uh, looks like or what it will look like in a couple of years? What are the big themes and changes that we've seen in, in sports gaming over the past uh, decade or so? Mm, that's a good question. Well, NCAA 14 was the first game to feature Ultimate Team. And that, if you're not familiar with Ultimate Team, it is a card collecting mode with microtransactions. It's been in the news from time to time because it makes EA a, a lot of money. There is talk about regulating it because people will open these packs trying to get these players so that they can build their Ultimate Team. And it's worked very well for FIFA. It's worked very well for Madden. But it has been a real source of friction because, well, the fans accuse EA of putting all the resources in Ultimate Team because that's what makes money, whereas the career modes are kind of being neglected. So your classic, I'm going to take my team and I'm going to take it to the Super Bowl and I'm going to keep running it for years and years after that, the simulation modes without all of the microtransactions and everything. EA has kind of let those modes, uh, you know, go a little, go to seed a little bit and fans have not been extremely happy about that. EA will swear up and down that no, in fact, Ultimate Team in some ways is a shoestring operation. The franchise modes are actually getting lots of attention. They're just not uh, resonating for whatever reason with the fans, whatever. But yeah, so Ultimate Team will be a big one. It'll almost certainly be in the new NCAA football because that's where they make their money. Beyond that, NBA 2K has had a lot of success with its modes. Basically a mode where you create a player and you start out in the college in college leagues. Sometimes uh, there was one where you started out playing in China. Uh, they have a different story every single year and you rise up to the top of the NBA and you keep building up your player and then you can play online and everything. That's an amazing fit for NCAA football and I wouldn't be shocked if EA tries to incorporate that in some way. Not the least because the original, I believe it was called Road to Glory mode in NCAA football was very popular. People really enjoyed it. So having a modern take on that seems like a given for the new NCAA football game. Kat, you wrote that there's also been this sort of uptick since the pandemic started in the secondary market for games and nostalgia for familiar titles like NCAA 14. What do you think it is about NCAA 14 that makes it so beloved? I think it really is just nostalgia. Because it's so funny. I was covering the series back back in the days when it was coming out. And the general consensus was that NCAA football was a bit... It took more risks than Madden, but it was also really buggy all the time. I remember when I was playing NCAA football, we were trying to run Dynasty Leagues and the game would, we couldn't finish games because it wouldn't record results. The servers were always such a huge problem. Uh, they tended to run kind of slow. They had all kinds of very weird glitches. People were complaining about NCAA football just as they, much as they were talking about Madden. But, you know, college football has a really large following, particularly in the Southeast portion of the United States. People who don't like pro football and so don't feel like they have a video game anymore. And College football has woven its way a little bit into Madden, but in a very, very basic way. It's part of their new player mode um, face of the franchise. So as a result, NCAA 14, I think, has grown in esteem in people's minds over the years. Beyond that, it also comes from a different era in sports games. So in this time, this was Ultimate Team existed, but it wasn't quite as overpowering as it is now. People 
tend to have very rose-colored glasses when they look back on games of the past. And admittedly, NCAA 14 also has its strengths. I mean, it had a really nice presentation. I was looking at some of the older games. I was like, wow, this game actually looks really good. It had a really fleshed out career mode, which something that people really miss. It had really good recruitment. Uh, the Road to Glory mode I already mentioned was really cool. You start in high school and you can customize the actual high school teams at uh, coaching trees where you could actually update your coaches and everything. You could level up your coaches as you go. There was a real sense of, I can take a team like the Golden Gophers, who are a two-star school, I believe, in NCAA 14, and grow them up into a power team. And that is like a really engrossing thing that is not really present in Madden. And, you know, the pandemic hit and everybody kind of wanted their comfort food and college football fans are going, I miss college football. I want NCAA 14. I can play it on my Xbox. I'm going to play it on my Xbox. And as a result, all of a sudden, uh, people weren't selling their copies. The secondary market exploded uh, for this game. And you saw NCAA copies of NCAA football selling for hundreds of dollars on eBay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can say that I have a copy of it from back in the day. Maybe I should uh, get in on that and see what I can sell it for on, the, it. on the market. Uh, yeah, but it, it does sound like that's kind of a similar situation to what we've seen with a lot of other games, like the the beloved NFL 2K5, mm. you know, where it's like, it's tough to know how much of it is this halo effect from people just being mad about EA, you know, getting exclusive licenses or changes in the industry versus like features legitimately being there in those older games that are like removed or just didn't make the leap across console generations to to the way they are now and it all kind of adds up to this like gauzy nostalgic you know memory that we have of these old games as being maybe a little better than they actually were but they still also had a lot of cool stuff in them it helps that there's community effects like so people are continuing to make updated rosters I believe there was a 4K patch out there that I was seeing on YouTube. So the fact that the community support continues to exist for this game as well makes it so it's not entirely buried in the past. So what what is the state of things right now in terms of, is there a place for, for sports games outside of the world of Ultimate Team where you you do have a place for that single-player mode, uh, that, that franchise mode, the sort of uh, classic nostalgic mode? Or is it just going to be a matter of more and more doubling down on Ultimate Team because that's how uh, companies make their money? And like sports games will never be what we think of uh, uh, when we kind of think back to the games that we loved growing up and, and what we loved about them, that those days are just kind of gone. I don't think they're gone. I think that MLB The Show shows that you can have a really good balance of really strong single-player modes on top of a really strong ultimate team mode. If anything, it's mostly the EA Sports games that have suffered the most. NBA 2K has shown that you can have a really fantastic single-player mode that will really resonate with people, that is really deep and really fully featured. NBA 2K is... A stumbling block is that they also weave it into the online portion of the game. And so people are mad that there are accelerators and that the progression is balanced around having to spend money so that you can immediately get to the top level. And so as a result, there's a kind of a big grind to get to that story mode. If you take that away, if you make the progression normal and maybe monetize based on cosmetics instead, you can have a really compelling product that will satisfy the single-player mode people while also making the people who hold the purse strings pretty happy. To shift gears just a little bit for, for both of you, what is the best sports video game? What is your favorite sports video game? Are they the same? Or uh, uh, how, how would you uh, characterize each of those? 
Uh, Backyard Baseball 2001. Oh, interesting. Yes. No question. And what what did you like so much about it, Emily? I mean, there is a level of nostalgia there. That is the game that I played growing up where you would like sit with a friend in one giant computer chair and one person would have the keyboard, one would have the mouse. Um, but I thought the gameplay was really fun. I could put Tony Gwynn and Nomar on the same team, which is like directly for my interests. And it was fun. There was personality. The characters were really great. I thought the concept was awesome. I am still waiting for it to end up on iOS and be able to play it on my phone. I think it's the perfect game to come back. I think there's news that it might, or at least there was a couple of years ago. I am anxiously awaiting the return of Backyard Baseball. I'm going to go with an extremely nerdy answer. I'm going to say Captain Tsubasa on the NES. It never came out in North America, but it was great because it was basically a Japanese anime turned into a soccer game. And it has a little bit of a strategy element. It's not just full-on arcade. Uh, you had a story mode about a kid who rises up and eventually joins the Japanese national team and is taking on, I think, West Germany in the World Cup finals. Um, and I, every time I see that game, I think, why can't FIFA do this? Why doesn't FIFA understand the kind of appeal of when you're playing these games, it's a real sort of wish fulfillment of playing as this kid who rises up to eventually make it to the top. NBA 2K sort of gets it, but there's a real innocence to Captain Tsubasa that I really appreciate. So that is my sentimental favorite sports game of all time. That's awesome. Yeah, that sounds, it reminds me of uh, the MLB Power Pros series mm. where it's sort of like you start out playing baseball and then you're like, I'm in a full-blown dating sim right now and I didn't <laughs> know how this happened, but I'm here for it. And I, uh, for my personal favorite, I'll just throw it in. I think we talked about it uh, before we started recording, but NHL 94 is mm. just to keep with the hockey theme of the show, uh, nothing can beat it. Uh, I still go back and play emulators uh, and I know they have gone back to that well, which you were saying, Kat, is maybe a bad sign for the NHL series that they're sort of going back to that well again, but it's also nostalgic and fun. A little bit. I mean, NC and NHL 14 was the last good one, and NHL 14 also had a version of NHL 94 bundled in. So just every once in a while, EA Canada knows that they can go back to NHL. What I'm curious is one, what was your team? And two, did you make Wayne Gretzky's head bleed? <laughs> well, uh, my team was the Pittsburgh Penguins because they were very oh, stacked. No. They were extremely stacked uh, at mm. that time. And uh, it was just fun. Like, Mario Lemieux had a 99-shot power. So if you just skate across into the <laughs> into the slot and do a, a slap shot, he, he would score most of the time. I probably made Gretzky's head bleed in NHL PA. I think that was mm. the one from Swingers. Uh, but uh, I played a lot on the PC. And by that time, uh, NHL hockey for DOS, they had gotten rid of of the fighting they'd gotten rid of the blood it really was you know the only downside to those games is uh, the, the lack of unadulterated violence talking about favorite sports games like if you want to go back to that era i really love tech mobile that was kind oh, of yeah. my retro kind of sports game and i have a i think it's on my nes classic or something or my switch or whatever but periodically i'll just break it out and i'll say wow this game is so much fun i love the music I love the very basic rock, paper, scissors, pick a play, hopefully it works out, but you still have to execute it. Ah, oh, what a wonderful game. And of course, talking about Mario Lemieux being overpowered, it has the most overpowered player in all of history, which is Bo Jackson. Go watch YouTube videos of Bo Jackson just running back and forth on the field while players literally bounce off him. 
Uh, so clearly we could talk about uh, video games all day, but uh, we're, we'll let you go. We'll have to keep an eye on EA Sports and and just the state of sports games in the future. But thank you both so much for talking through with this uh, with me, Emily and Kat. And Kat, where can people follow you to find more of your work these days? Sure, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. And I've been doing a lot of work just kind of around these days. I'm over on IGN. I've been doing work for Vice Games. I've been doing work for... I have a column over on Rock, Paper, Shotgun. It is about role-playing video games. And once sports season kicks off, you can definitely look forward to me doing reviews for all of those games as well. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll look out for that and uh, hopefully be able to talk to you at some point in the future as well. Uh, thanks again for joining us. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data, some of which lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents. We call it the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. And this time, I'm calling my own number with Sarah out. I'm going to bring a rabbit hole. And my rabbit hole is looking forward to one of my favorite times of year, the beginning of the baseball season. Pitchers and catchers uh, are currently reporting. uh, And yeah, it'll be a little bit of a different spring training feel than usual, uh, certainly against the backdrop of the pandemic. But it's just always a wonderful feeling to see baseball coming back. And we had some big news a couple weeks ago when Trevor Bauer, the best available pitcher, signed with the best team, the defending champion L.A. Dodgers, to become the highest paid player in baseball in 2021. That was the big uh, free agent splash that people were kind of waiting for uh, to, to, to come through. But after that, it does turn out that there are still plenty of pretty good free agents to be signed, even with the best free agent available off the board. Uh, so I was kind of curious, how good are these guys? How, how good could you make your team by signing the best free agents available? Uh, if you look at uh, Fangraphs' rankings, you know, they, you've, you've got some good starting pitching just sitting on the shelf right now. Jake Odorizzi, Rick Porcello, Taiwan Walker, you got Jackie Bradley Jr., great defensive outfielder. Uh, Brett Gardner, always a uh, gritty, you know, tough out uh, so, uh, in your lineup. So you've got some guys. So what I wanted to do was kind of a variation on a story we did a few years ago where we tried to find the most average team in baseball uh, and make a whole roster out of that. Uh, obviously, that team finished 81 and 81 by design. I put finished in quotation marks because they didn't actually exist. They existed in our heart. Uh, But uh, I wanted to use the same method and put together a roster of the best players that are still available to be signed by anyone uh, and, and see how good you could do if you made a whole team out of them. So here's my lineup that I found Uh, at catcher Tyler Flowers at first base, Jed Jerko, he had first base eligibility. Uh, it's a, some of these are a little fudge to get guys in, but you know it's based on the eligibility and the Fangrass rankings. Second base, Brad Miller. Shortstop, Andrew Romine. We're not off to a great start, but yeah, this third doesn't base, sound like a good team. But go ahead, Michael Franco, coming off you know uh, a rebound. You got Jackie Bradley in the outfield. Brett Gardner. Shin Su Chu, always underrated player. Uh, he's available. Uh, your bench will have guys like Ryan Braun, Todd Frazier, Mets' favorite Todd. We'll probably have to fend off the Mets to sign him, but Todd Frazier's in there. Eric Sogard, Mitch Moreland, designated hitter. Jeff Mathis, backup catcher, great defensive catcher. Not so much of a great hitter, but we'll we'll take it as our backup. Good starting rotation with Porcello, 
Walker, Brett Anderson, Annabelle Sanchez, Jake Odorizzi as our uh, front five, Cole Hamels as number, you know, six starter, swingman type of guy, long relief, you know, use him how you see fit. Our closers, Trevor Rosenthal. You've also got Jeremy Jeffress, Shane Green, Tyler Clippard, our favorite, Oliver Perez, who is still somehow in baseball, and Andrew Kashner, another guy that could either relieve or start. If you take all those guys and you use what's called the established level of their performance, which Bill James came up with, which is just kind of a weighted average of their past three seasons with more weight on the most recent seasons and add up how many war you could reasonably expect that team to have, you could reasonably expect that team to have 37.2 war, which would be good for 84.9 wins in a 162-game season. That's a pretty good team that you could make, despite the fact that we are giving starting spots to Andrew Romine and Jed Jerko. Now, is that a little uh, optimistic? It perhaps is, because even though the the established level system does give more weight to more recent seasons, it also doesn't know about injuries. It doesn't know about, uh, you know, dramatic drop-offs in performance uh, in, in a player's most recent season. So it's a little on the optimistic side. If you add up their projected war at fan graphs, it's less than that. But... The point remains is that you could build a team, and the cost of this team, if we use the expected annual average value at Fangraphs of this team, is just a shade under $107 million. So for context's sake, uh, $107 million would be below the average payroll for 2021, which is $116 million, and just a little bit more than the Colorado Rockies are paying for their team after dumping Nolan Arenado. So we would be paying roughly as much as a team that is rebuilding, just got rid of their best player, you know, to uh, a lot of anti-fanfare. What's the opposite of fanfare? Criticism. Uh, uh, from from their fan base and from observers alike. But we would be signing a bunch of guys off the street. Maybe it's even an expansion franchise. It's the Seattle Kraken of uh, baseball. But the point is, the larger point <laughs> is you could quibble with the, the 85 win projection. It might be a little on the high side for that team. But it's not that much on the high side. I think you could build a 500 team from players that are still unsigned. And I think that that shows how much work there is left to do when we talk about baseball looking forward. Teams and, and you know the, the ownership groups around the league have been like, oh, we don't have the money to pay these guys. The pandemic really hit us hard. We don't know how long the season will be going forward. We don't know if we'll have fans. Fine. You, you can use those excuses if you want. But if you want to make your team better, there are at least 25, I just rattled off, guys you know, on the free agent waiver wire right now that you could sign uh, that, that would help your team get better in some way, shape, or form if you're trying to, to make the playoffs or um, make a push into contention. How does this year compare to last year in terms of the number of free agents remaining unsigned at this point i think it's I, I i don't know the number off the top of my head but i do think that this is a better group that still remains at this point like i know notoriously i think it was two years ago the bryce harper manny machado group uh was still i think they may have still been unsigned at this late point in the offseason or at least it was like pretty close to it and that was like notable historically for the the number of good talented players that were still left um not with a team at the start of spring training it does seem like 
everyone, if you're 33 or older, roughly, I mean, if you're like sort of early 30s, you can still get a big deal like Real Moodoo or someone like that, or, or I guess George Springer. But if you're older than like 33, it's just like one year deal, one year deal, two year deal. And it's just they're just going to be sort of doing this every year, especially if you're not a star until they retire. Yeah, no, for yeah. sure. But but even like, you know, the older stars, obviously, you know, Nelson Cruz will have a one year, but he's 40. So uh, it doesn't. I don't know what kind of he contract the I'm expecting. star. I don't know what kind of contract I'm expecting him hey, to let's, get. Hey, let's give him a 10-year deal. I think we can work him in under our uh, luxury tax <laughs> yeah. on this team. But no, that's a great point. That that it's it's kind of that that class of like pretty good, maybe not like total superstars, but they're also in their early 30s that seem to at best be able to latch on with like a one-year deal. And I, you know, I expect most of these guys that I just rattled off to find teams before opening day, but it almost certainly will be those like kind of, you know, one year below market deals that they've sort of signing just to stay in the game. Yeah, it's like Adam Eaton, 32, still productive one year deal with the White Sox. That seems to be the new course of action. Yeah, and that that goes back to what we were talking about with the Rays when they made the World Series was about how the influence of frankly, sabermetrics and a better understanding of uh, aging patterns. And of course, you know, the the transitioning of baseball away from the era of performance enhancing drugs in which you could conceivably have the best player, best years of a player's career come at 35, 36 and 37 or whatever. Um, all of those factors have kind of contributed to, uh, you know, hurting the, the middle class of free agents, the the good but not great players as they go into their 30s um which to be fair is the bulk of the guys on on my fantasy team whatever we're calling this the kraken so Ioannis Cespedes doesn't even make Neil's still not signed free agent team how far has he fallen unbelievable i'm not even sure he's yeah so he is on fan, uh, fangraphs's list but he is i believe the third lowest projected uh war for 2021 only Danny Sant- Tana and Matt Kemp are projected for fewer war in uh, 2021. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how things work out for um, for the rest of the free agents. And as we go forward to baseball, I know we'll we'll talk about we'll have our season preview, our blowout, where we go into the projections. I'm excited to do that. Uh, excited to finally have some of those projection systems drop in the past week or two, like seeing the Pakoda. That's always feels like Christmas morning when those drop from baseball prospectus. Uh, you know, all of the other various systems, Fangraphs has theirs out. Clay Davenport, a longtime uh, person that I followed, a former baseball prospectus person also, he has his out. So it's, it's projection season uh, and... Uh, maybe some of these guys will be able to move the needle uh, when they sign with teams to change some of those teams' projections. That will do it for this week's show. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Jeff, Kat, and Emily, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.